0: Hey, do you feel like you're getting thrown around the healthcare system and are frustrated with the lack of clarity that you're getting from your providers? Do you feel like you're getting suboptimal care and that you deserve better? Do you want help busting some myths and deciphering what's good and bad information out there? If you'd like to be a part of a community that's connected with the best resources in the area and is taking small steps toward their health and fitness goals, then this podcast is for you. My name is Jeff Danning, and welcome to the Seeking Wellness Podcast. All right, what's going on, everybody? Dr. Jeff Denning here, physical therapist and golf fitness professional. Wanted to come on here today. It's just me and talk about dry needling. It's something I have recently been trained in and have gotten really excited about and wanted to share with you guys kind of what it is, what the theories are behind it and kind of how I'm using it in clinic today. So if that's all right with you, we'll get right into it. So what is dry needling? Well, it's actually very similar to traditional Chinese acupuncture, but there are a few differences in how it's applied. So the tools are actually the same. We use the same thin monofilament needle. So it's really a, a really small needle. It's not like a something that you would use for an IV, much smaller than that. And the word dry just refers to the fact that there's no medication attached to the needle. There's no injectate that we're putting into your body. Right. So the difference in philosophy is that dry needling is more founded in Western medicine and traditional Chinese acupuncture, of course, is founded more in Eastern medicine philosophies. So dry needling is based on muscular anatomy and bones and ligaments, the nervous system, tendons, things like that. Whereas traditional Chinese acupuncture is based on kind of aligning meridians and manipulation of energy and chi and things like that. So the tools are actually the same, but the application can be very different. So how did we get started with dry needling? Well, the story that I learned goes that there was actually a physician back in, I don't know, I think in the 40s, that was seeing a patient for shoulder pain or something, right? And they decided that they were going to give them an injection, probably a steroid injection into their shoulder. Okay. So a patient comes in, they're chatting with the doctor and the doctor goes, okay, I'm going to put the needle in. Are you ready? You know, so they squeeze their shoulder, get that ready, prep the area, um, stick the patient with the needle and the patient goes, wow, that feels so much better. And the doctor's like, hmm, that's kind of interesting actually, because I haven't pushed the medication yet. I haven't injected you with the actual steroid. All I've done is poke you with the needle, right? So I think that kind of sparked some conversation and started getting the ball rolling on what we now today call dry needling. After that, there's been kind of some main schools of thought about how dry needling works and what the theories are behind it. And they've all probably got some element of truth to them maybe are incomplete a little bit and we're getting a little bit better picture of what dry needling is actually doing today but originally the back in the 50s 60s uh, janet Travell was the kind of pioneer in the dry needling research and she was looking at it based off of a trigger point model right so she was basically of the mindset that we have trigger points, trigger points being any of those like knots that you feel in your muscles, any of those really tight balls or painful areas um, that you can kind of feel, a lot of people have them in their upper traps or on their back that you want to just like mash out with a foam roller or just wanna press on all the time and they kind of hurt, right? So she is of the idea that trigger points are causing this pain response. And if we can stick a needle in that trigger point, we can get that trigger point to kind of twitch that muscle, those muscle fibers to twitch and activate. And eventually we get them to the point where they fatigue and that trigger point actually deactivates and that can help with the pain response. Now there's, uh, I think this theory is kind of incomplete and i think there's value in getting some of those trigger point responses but there's more to it than just the trigger point theory and wow i'm saying trigger points a lot but trigger points are also interesting in the fact that they not only can cause pain where you press on them, but they can also refer pain to other parts of the body too, right? So a common pattern in the shoulder is that on the backside of your shoulder blade, a lot of people have trigger points there. It actually refers pain to the front side of your shoulder. And so that can kind of open up some interesting doors, some different things to look at if we're attacking the front side of your shoulder for some pain but we're not getting any results. Maybe we need to look back there for other possible culprits. So the trigger point model is interesting, incomplete. I think it's not the most comfortable, as you can imagine, um, just kitting in there with a needle and just like fishing around, digging, poking, and and trying to elicit a twitch response in a muscle can be a little bit uncomfortable. So I think there are more preferable ways to use dry needling. Another theory that has been very common is the radiculopathic theory. So stay with me, kind of a big word there, but that is basically just referring to the level of the spinal cord that your pain is associated with. So all of our sensation, all of our movement originate from our brain and spinal cord, right? So if I touch the center of of the front of my thigh, Right, That spot is specific to um, one the spot on my brain but to also a certain level on my spinal cord, right Probably about the L1L2 level, okay which is in kind of the lower part of your back, your lumbar spine. And so the thought with the radiculopathic model is okay, if I'm having knee pain for instance and we know that the areas that innervate the knee are kind of the L3, L2, L3, L4 area, then maybe I can poke a needle in the multifidi, which are just little muscles that kind of surround the vertebral column, your vertebrae. Maybe I can poke a muscle in the L2, L3, L4 vertebrae, close to where those nerve roots exit and they combine and they eventually go down and innervate that knee joint. Maybe if I stimulate it higher up instead of targeting it at the knee joint, that will have a profound effect on your knee pain this is kind of an interesting theory too and i think it has some validity again it's a different way of looking at something away from the site of pain we know that the painful body part is often not the culprit it's often just the victim and so by thinking this way a little higher up the chain maybe we can target some different things if we are jamming our head against the wall and not getting the response that we're looking for I don't think this model is complete either if you were having knee pain i wouldn't just stick needles in your back Um, i think there's some benefit to i don't think this model is necessarily complete either if you were having some knee pain i wouldn't just stick needles in your back i think there's benefit to getting some needles closer to the actual target that we're looking for and maybe using some different applications rather than just the trigger point or just the radiculopathic model So kind of where we're at today with how dry needling works is maybe a combination of the first two things I mentioned, but there's also a big nervous system response, a big cortical impact. One of the most powerful, precise inputs I can give you is to put a needle in something, and I can be very accurate with it too. For example, if I wanted to target your piriformis, that muscle is so deep, like beneath, your glute maximus your glute medius and minimus right it is underneath layers and layers of muscle that there's no way i can just dig my elbow or dig my thumb down into your glute muscle and touch your piriformis right but if i get a three four inch needle i can actually yes target that muscle same thing like with the multifidi that we were talking about earlier those muscles that surround your spine i can press on your spine with my hand but i'm going through lots of layers of ligaments and erector spinae muscle before i get to those multifidi and i'm also probably if i want to target l3 i'm probably also touching l2 l1 l4 l5 not just because i'm a bad therapist but that's just because of how the everything's connected right it's hard to be precise with your hands but I can get pretty accurate with a pinpoint needle and so this is kind of a cool thing that we're seeing with functional MRI which is like a live mapping of the brain while we're needling something so they were needling like the uh, the front of your shin basically the muscles that kind of innervate the front of your shin and they looked at the area of the brain that controls that specific part of your leg and they needled it They hooked it up to some e-stim while they needled it and they compared it to a control like a sham needling, basically. And so what we're seeing is that that area of the brain lights up when we're using a needle in that area that we don't get when just the sham needling is used. And it lights up even more when the e-stim, the electrical stimulation, is used. So why is this important? While we're getting some more and more evidence that the cortical impact is critical, that that input to your brain and how your central nervous system receives that response is really important. So tiny little anatomy lessons. Basically in our brain, we have areas of virtual representation of all parts of our body. There's a tiny little area of your brain that represents your foot and ankle. There's an area that represents your knee and your thigh. There's an area that represents your hip and your glute and so on and so forth. Most of the time, those areas are well-defined. They have good margins, good borders, and they're clear images, those pictures, if you will, are clear pictures on our brain of the rest of our body. And I think this is more easily visualized when you think about someone having a stroke, right? When someone has a stroke, blood flow is cut off to a portion of the brain. And so as you can imagine, that area of the brain gets damaged, it gets atrophied, it kind of withers away. And all of a sudden, those borders, those pictures, those well-defined images aren't so clear anymore. And so that's why when you get someone that's had a stroke, it might just be very specific and it's just their right hand that's having problems moving or it's just their foot and ankle that's having problems lifting up because it was just that very specific part of the brain that got damaged. That representation of the hand on their brain is not so well defined anymore. In cases where people haven't had strokes, it's called cortical smudging, so that crystal-clear representation of that hand is not so clear anymore. It's kind of blurry. It's kind of smudged, not necessarily because there's been a lack of blood flow to the brain. It's not that there's been any trauma to the brain necessarily, but it's because that area is in pain. That's a big one that can cause some of that cortical smudging up there or disuse, right? If people are like post-surgery, they are not allowed to use whatever they're arm their leg for three, four weeks, that area won't be as defined as prior to the surgery, right? Because they haven't been using it for a long period of time. And so if the saying is true, especially in the brain, if you don't use it, you lose it. So all of that is a long-winded way to say we can kind of sharpen those areas that are getting smudged or maybe aren't as well-defined because of a long history of uh, disuse or non-use or pain because we've been avoiding that area, right? How, how often have you seen someone that has an old knee injury and they just don't use their knee very much anymore? It's very likely that that knee, that picture of that knee on their brain is not crystal clear anymore. So we can kind of sharpen that image up. So, Anyways, there's a, there's a big nervous system response. We're, we're learning more that it's not just the immediate local effects on the tissue that we're having an impact on when we needle, but we're also having an impact higher up with the nervous system, which I think is pretty cool. So how do I use dry needling today? Well, just three things I want to leave you with. Number one, it's not terribly different than any other tool that I use. It's not different than any adjustments or spinal manipulation that I might make. It's not any different than cupping or scraping or any wrapping tools that I use, but I want to follow that up with active movement, right? The needling or whatever soft tissue work you like to do, you kind of have to follow that up with active movement with exercise, with strengthening, with some mobility work to lock in those changes, right? Anything we do in the clinic with my hands is kind of just a short-term effect that opens up a window for us to exercise without pain or exercise with improved mobility or exercise with increased strength. And so it's important that we don't just use this as a standalone intervention most of the time. Number two, I'm using more e-stem electrical stimulation with the needles rather than what we call pistoning or twisting or tenting of the needles. So pistoning is kind of pulling the needle in and out of the muscle rapidly. Tenting is pulling it out and twisting the muscle. These are techniques that are used to sort of disrupt that soft tissue and kind of break apart though any minor adhesions, but they're not the most comfortable techniques. And it seems like we get less muscular soreness and better outcomes with the stimulation response, the e-stem rather than those more aggressive needling techniques. So I'm using stimulation more often than just trying to poke the crap out of a trigger point. And lastly, it's not just about pain relief. That's obviously the big one that people come in for, but there are lots of cool applications that dry needling is being used for. We're talking about improved mobility, right? Maybe that allows people to access a new range of motion that they weren't able to prior to the needling. There's some cool research on reducing tone, not a lot yet, but like when people have strokes and they're really like stuck, like their elbows stuck in that bent position, we can kind of needle and reduce that rigidity that they get after the stroke. We can combat post-surgical atrophy, right? So if you are not using a muscle for three, four, five, six weeks Um, after surgery, you're going to have a, it's going to be a lot weaker, right? It's going to be kind of shrunk. And so even if you're not allowed to actively move that muscle, saying you can't, they don't want you um, bearing weight through that leg or anything like that, we can combat some of that Uh, muscular atrophy we can begin to almost strengthen it or at least limit the amount that the strength is decreased by by using some stimulation with the needles. Athletic recovery is a big one that's becoming popular and it's best used immediately or 24 hours after an event but we can really limit the amount of soreness that you have after if you're doing like multiple football games or a competition event in the day, right? This is a great way to kind of increase that fluid response and flush out some of that inflammation that we get after an athletic event. Athletic recovery is a big one that's becoming more popular in the research, kind of best utilized immediately or within 24 hours after a window. So think like if you have multiple Athletic events within one day. This would be kind of a powerful tool to use I'm a big fan of doing active recovery like just some light cardio on a bike but this is a great way to get some of those muscles pumping and Get that same effect without having to actively move your body Even on the opposite end of the spectrum we see pre-athletic performance increase when certain areas of the body are needled and applied with electrical stimulation we get an improved like jump height or swing speed and there's some really exciting applications with that so just wanted to share that with you guys wanted to expand a little bit on the history of dry needling and kind of how it works. It's like most things in the medical world, a little bit complicated, but I hope that cleared some things up for you. If you want to have a more in-depth conversation about that, please reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to chat, and I'm open to any suggestions or things you guys have to say about it. If you're interested in trying that out, shoot me a message, and we'll see if we can figure it out. Thanks, guys. Hope you have a great day, and let me know what you want to hear next. Hey everybody, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Seeking Wellness Podcast. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss out on any of these great episodes. If you haven't left me a review yet, that would mean the world to me so I can implement any of your feedback that you have for me. And if you feel compelled to do so, share this out with more people, because my goal is to connect with and help as many people as possible in our community. And finally, if you have any ideas for future episodes or suggestions on guests I should interview please shoot me a message. Cause I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again. And until next time.